0: It's my pleasure today to share a recent conversation that I had with the brilliant Leon Furs. Leon is an international consultant, author and speaker with over 15 years of experience in secondary and tertiary education and leadership. Leon is currently studying his PhD on the implications of generative artificial intelligence on writing instruction and education. In this conversation, we talked about how being a parent has changed him, the impact of generative AI on schools, and we also discussed some of the ethical complexities of technology use. I hope that you get as much out of this wide ranging discussion as I did with the amazing Leon Furs. Leon Furs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, thanks so much for uh, chatting to me today. Where are you phoning in from?
1: Uh, I am on a farm uh, called Grassdale, which is out in southwest Victoria.
0: Lovely. And uh, is, what's the weather like down there? Is it cold? Is it hot?
1: <laughs> it was uh, 33 degrees today. So this is the first real day of summer that we've had.
0: Wow. And uh, as uh, we uh, had a chat about before we hit record, I can hear a faint uh, accent. Um, whereabouts are you from?
1: I'm from Stoke on Trent in the Midlands in uh, in England, which nice. was uh, born there and grew up there, and left in 2009 to move to Australia.
0: Nice. Um, I- I'm also from uh, Nottingham, as I mentioned, so not too far from Stoke. The Midlands is a uh, is a great place to grow up. What do you uh, What do you miss most about it?
1: Uh, well, the the cold Christmas, <laughs> the, yeah. the snowy Christmas. That'd be nice. Um, yeah. And uh, oddly, on on LinkedIn recently, somebody did one of those stereotypical AI posts that seem oh, to nice. be doing the rounds at the moment, and made a uh, a stereotypical person from Stoke and there, a lot of pot banks kilns uh, pottery references, nice. and um, that's quite nice. <laughs>
0: yeah, I I, um, I I don't know if you know Demby Pottery. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a um, uh, my mum was very close to that, and so she. Uh, Every year she sends me a tea towel or a mug from Denby Pottery. Uh, but I, I know Stoke is quite a proud, uh, uh, would you say a, a pottering? Is that the right word? A, <laughs> a pottery? Something towel. like that. Something like that. Um, Leon, quite possibly the most important question for our conversation, uh, when I can finally go back to my second favourite city, state in the world, Victoria, and buy you a coffee. Uh, what's your coffee order? Long Black long black no mucking around straight to the No point. mucking
1: around no sugar no no nothing
0: nice uh is there an item that is still on your bucket list that you would love to tick off are you a bucket list kind of guy i i'm,
1: I'm not much of a bucket list kind of guy but um i wouldn't mind uh uh look a nice a, a nice guitar like a Maiden custom or a or a, a gibson les paul
0: nice the first guitar i uh bought and first and only guitar i bought was a Matan, Uh and uh they are quite spectacular.
1: I've got a couple of maintenance behind me here. You can't see because the background's blurred and nobody can see because we're audio only, but <laughs> um, they, they, they go pretty well.
0: Nice. And, and Leon, have you um, read a book uh, that has caused you to stop and reconsider a few things in your life? It could be within your sphere of education or it could be more broadly.
1: Um, yeah, I can see it just on the shelf over here. Actually, It's Haruki Murakami's um, book, one of his nonfiction books called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. Wow. which is uh, a little autobiographical book are you a runner i am yeah i sort of lapsed and then i'm back into it
0: fantastic so am i i um i i love and and, and i don't want this to to diverge into a running podcast but it's <laughs> um i um i've had the privilege of running a number of um marathons and i i wouldn't consider myself i still wouldn't consider myself a runner uh, considering the uh the uh the times and the expertise of people that actually win these races um but it is addictive isn't it I love mm-hmm. I love getting out there love going for a run uh I, I did lapse a little bit during covid and I'm uh, trying to get back into it but uh are you a consistent runner or are you trying to sort of reinvent that habit a bit
1: I I am now that I'm getting back into it um so I I like you I go for distance over speed um I can chug along. Uh, you know chug through the melbourne marathon and uh, a few half marathons quite regularly um a few years ago pre COVID, like you um i do have a cousin over in the uk who's a he's a full-on marathon runner you know a three-hour sub three-hour um professional i think and he uh okay. he he does everything all over the world but um i i'm lucky now if i can get myself out of the door
0: <laughs> did you uh did you re- recently run the melbourne marathon
1: uh 2017 i think was the last melbourne marathon i ran it was one of their anniversary marathons
0: fantastic i uh i just got a uh, email from today saying that the uh, general admission had been exhausted uh so i probably should have gone on to that uh a little earlier um if you could have a dinner party with anybody um who would you love to invite obviously your uh, family doesn't count in the headcount, but who would you love to sit down and have a chat with
1: Uh, I'm going to cheat on this question and say absolutely no one because I hate dinner parties (laughs) which is very miserable but um I I like having dinner at home with my family I'm not a I'm not a big socializer
0: um so Leon what was your um what was your upbringing like and what are you most grateful for um from your family
1: um look where, where I grew up I said I grew up in Stoke um it's uh, post-industrial town, um, you know, retrospectively probably a bit rough. A lot of unemployment and um, a lot of issues with the education system there. I think when I was going through school, it had the worst education authority in the country. Um, but one thing that I am most grateful for is that my parents battled pretty hard uh, to get me into a good school. So we have the catchment areas, and you sort of just put into a school. The school that I was designated was um, was was pretty rough. Um, and uh, my mum actually wouldn't, uh, wouldn't send me. Uh, So the education welfare officers were banging on the door saying, why isn't your kid going to school? She said, I'm not going to send him until he gets into this, this other school. And um, that school probably, uh, you know, really contributed a lot to, to where I am now. So uh, I wasn't, I wasn't great with school, sort of, you know, Bounced in and out a little bit and um, had a bit of school refusal for a while there. And by the time I got through the end of school, uh, the school that I went to really set me on the track through university and and everything that followed. So um, yeah, really just grateful for that opportunity through education.
0: And um, you mentioned that you're from um, a working class area, myself included. Um, What did education mean um, to your parents? And how would those conversations had around your dinner table about the value and the importance of education
1: um yeah I I, I'm trying to trying to think back to what my parents experience of education was now I know my dad finished school and um and then he went on to a trade college he became a plumber um and I've got a feeling that mum might have either just about scraped through or not quite finished the senior secondary um, and, and she went on into a career in insurance I think um so I was a first in family for tertiary study, um, including sort of extended family cousins everything else and that was um you know kind of a, a big deal really so there was a lot of a lot of celebration um, around getting into university and uh, going on to study literature.
0: Yeah, it it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I um like I said, I I I'm from this little country town called Belpa. Um, my uh, dad, I uh, went to university, and went on to be a podiatrist, or what they say in England, which is a chiropodist. And um, uh, my mum uh, worked as an occupational therapy. But my grandparents were very working class. They were the first people. Uh, my parents were the first people in their family to go to university or to go into higher education and education, especially where I was from was perceived as this, it provided you with some incredible op- opportunities to be able to, um, I, I guess, break out of the society that you lived in. And mm-hmm. and, um, and and I know that I remember very clearly, um, the school that I went to was a wonderful school, um, but the school next door wasn't. And I remember very early on in my life, realizing that there were differences. And um, uh, yeah, it was sort of the first time I realized that just the privilege and just the significance and importance um, of education. Um, So, Leon, would you mind taking me back to the beginning? Um, What were you like at school? Um, and, and you mentioned that you're a bit of a sort of a school refuser, um, for those people that, that aren't aware of that term, it just means you didn't go to school, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. Um, but was there a teacher, um, that really made a difference, um, in your life?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um I can think of a couple of, uh, English teachers all the way through. Um, so even down to the, um, primary year levels, um, and, we I I think I was lucky to have uh, a series of really good um, English teachers in particular and that's the career I ended up going into but when I was at school I was more interested in computing um, maths physics I just didn't get on with any of those teachers so those were the classes that I ended up avoiding Um, (laughs) yeah um, even though they were probably where I had a bit more natural aptitude I think Um, and then English and literature were the teachers that I enjoyed more, Ms. Ferns, Miss Teggins uh, in primary school, Ms. Kirk, and um, they were probably the ones who steered me towards studying literature at university.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, and I, I had the privilege um, of interviewing the teacher that really made a difference in my life a lady called Mrs. Taylor Jones. And like I said, this little country town in the middle of England. Um, and I have no idea what this wonderful lady taught me. Um, <laughs> I, I am a teacher of that age now. And I know there's probably a bit of fractions in there a little bit of time, a bit of narrative. Um, but I have no idea what she taught me. But I, I, I know how I felt when I went into her classroom, and I felt safe, and I felt valued. And we uh there's a lot of students that have been were in her class over the years that have actually connected online on Facebook and they all share that same experience of feeling like they were the most important person in her class. And how did you feel when you went into the the classrooms of those teachers? Um, do you remember do you remember the content? Do you remember, yeah, explain to me what that what that was like when you're in their classrooms.
1: Thank you. I, I do. I remember a few specific lessons that stand out that were just yeah. really fun. But um, most of it, I think, is like you say—you just remember the feeling of um, being in in that room with that person. I, I, I remember yeah. that um, in primary school, one of the um, teachers—and obviously, they're sort of interdisciplinary in, in primary school rather than English teachers specifically—but she knew that I was a, a big reader and that i was going to the mobile library i don't know if you had those in your little nottingham town the little yeah, van on wheels <laughs> roll around yeah and um she she recommended uh eric by terry pratchett in one of his Discworld books and uh, and i got hooked on on that from um from a very early age that was in like year six i think which is probably um, a little bit younger than terry pratchett's normal audience but yeah uh, yeah it just really triggered an entire life of reading and um
0: isn't that interesting yeah it's do, do you think you would have uh, you mentioned before that you you kind of avoided maths and some other subjects where there was a teacher that you disliked or couldn't relate to which i completely um i, I completely understand um i had the same experience with maths as well and now it's by far my favourite subject to teach but i hated it in in high school because my teachers hated it which was bizarre to me and mm-hmm. um, but do you think your life would have taken a different trajectory if you had had an engaging maths teacher or a, 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 yeah do you, do you think your life would have looked a little bit different
1: it, I don't know because um like as I said I you know I really enjoyed um, computer science and, and the physics and sort of those kinds of sciences as well yeah and then you know I've ended up where I am now which is essentially I've come full circle yeah. Um, I've gone through literature and come out the other side, and ended up working in generative AI. So, yeah, um, you know, it does seem like all of the roads eventually lead uh, to the same place, even though some of them were a little bit um, bumpy, perhaps. Yeah,
0: and and what was it about literature that you loved? Look, I, I promise we'll get onto some of your current work, but I uh, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I talk what, about
1: what literature it? for days as well.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, what was it um, about literature that you loved so much? Why did you find it so? uh engaging and enthralling
1: uh, uh look i'm I'm a very sort of immersive reader i think and I've, I've got a very um strong imagination i was reading from a very early age and i've you know my oldest daughter now is seven she's been reading quite very strongly for for a long time as well and she loves reading just as much as i did at that age um yeah it's uh, look, it's probably part um just the enjoyment of reading, and particularly for me, science fiction, fantasy, but um, also heading into that kind of special interest territory, which is, you know, part of that um, autism diagnosis. Um, yeah. What we probably back in the, in my day would have called Aspergers, but we don't use that term anymore. Yeah. Um, so you get that kind of hyper focus, the special interest. You know, hence being able to pick up a Terry Pratchett book and then read twenty six other books by the same author in the space of a few weeks. It, it, it's um, interesting,
0: yeah. isn't it, Leon? Because I, I think that, um, and, and I am by no means um, an expert in this, but I feel like we are we are all on a spectrum of some kind. Um, and I think it's an incredible skill, I think, to ha- be able to have that hyper focus and that intention, that intentionality and that ability to be absorbed into a world. And, and I think are some of the most brilliant minds in the world those people that really change the direction of society and humanity, they just saw the world slightly differently. And who wants to be boring and see the world like everyone else? I love that there is such a a spectrum of learning styles and such a um. And I love that our understanding of uh, different types of diagnoses and 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 approaches to learning have really changed. Because I think about how many children throughout the years have sat in their class, have sat in classrooms, and felt, "I'm not good at this" or "I'm incapable of that." But really, it's just about how we change the way that we're presenting our curriculum and our content and um i think um it i'm so glad that the conversation i think has has shifted and as it mm. is beginning to appreciate some of those diverse learning styles because um i think it's a lot more common than we would understand would you agree with that
1: oh absolutely i mean you know back in the 1990s in stoke there was um, really no such thing as, as diagnosis there was um there was fitting fitting into the classroom environment and naughty uh, with, with sort of various shades of, of meaning. And, uh, you know, a lot of the reason why I probably spent a lot of time, particularly in senior school, out of the classroom um, for various reasons uh, was just because that environment didn't suit me, but there were also, there were no accommodations or understanding of that environment. And if you look at inclusive education nowadays, and even, you know, the work that I know my uh, daughter's primary school does with her, so much more inclusive so much more understanding of uh different ways of seeing the world and different ways of doing things yeah. that um you know you, you don't know what things would have been like if that if school was like that in the 90s yeah. um but it's great thank to thank see you. that it's thank goodness that way changing
0: I, i'm so grateful and and um, to change direction slightly leon um uh, what has being a parent taught you how is it uh has it changed you in any way? Because I know I am a fundamentally different person after having kids. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so we've got three kids, um, and each each one is is its own entire learning curve. You know, there's there's a yeah. whole journey involved. Um, our oldest daughter uh, got uh, the, an autism diagnosis during COVID, um, and it was actually that during that process that um, that I had a few red flags pop up um with with the same um yeah same diagnostic tools that our daughter was was using the dsm-5 and all of those things and so i think you learn a lot about yourself when you when you become a parent that maybe were things that you just you'd never really paid attention to or things that you take for granted uh you know you see some of that reflected in your kids and then as i say with each child it's very it's very different you know our, our middle son's very different our youngest daughter is only 20 months old and you know she's wild and her own little character and they're all totally different and you learn new things every day
0: yeah i i couldn't agree more we have two and i am surprised that uh, i I thought they would be the same because i thought there's only two (laughs) two parents i mean they can't be that much variety but they are completely different Mm -hmm. um we have one uh a quite sensitive little girl who is wonderful and artistic and creative and and then we also have um another who is not so much not so gentle not so delicate um but they're both they both have an insight and they bring a wonder um that I was not expecting and it's 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 interesting I think being a parent it's a wonderful uh it's an incredible privilege um so leon what does your what does your life consist of now in terms of education um and um uh, I'll I'll put all the links to all of your amazing resources and your articles and your website and your professional learning in the show notes. But for those people that are not familiar with your work, um, what does it involve now?
1: Um I was, so I I worked in secondary education for 15 years um and then finished my secondary school leadership role at the end of last year to start a PhD. Yeah. Um I, I actually uh I think I, I handed in my notice around May. Uh, last year with the intent to go into consultancy uh, in in literature at uh, literacy sorry reading and writing and uh, then a couple of weeks after I'd handed in my notice I spoke to Lucinda McKnight who's my PhD supervisor now and and she said oh look I've just uh, I've got this PhD scholarship opportunity it would only really work if um, if you could do it full-time though and I know that you're teaching and I said, well funnily enough um, I've just handed in my notice so maybe we'll give that a shot so um yeah that PhD kicked off officially 2 weeks before ChatGPT launched. Right. Um, which was fairly Funny. fairly good timing caught everybody by surprise. We were planning um some research around generative AI uh, but GPT-2 and GPT-3 um and the the potential kind of near future you know 3 years horizon of what those technologies might do to education. Um and then ChatGPT came in overnight. stirred everything up and um a month later I left the classroom and (laughs) here I am
0: and um Leon forgive my um ignorance um what on earth is generative AI
1: good question um (laughs) because nobody can really define it um there's like generative AI is is just a an, an offshoot of artificial intelligence which is obviously an incredibly broad field And generative AI really has only been um, a thing for about 10 years or so. And it's any artificial intelligence technology that takes a lot of data, goes through that data, learns the rules of the data that it's created on, and then learns to create the data from those sets of rules. So if you take something like ChatGPT, for example, you have a, a large language model Which sits on a whole pile of um, text language data, runs an algorithm through that data to learn how those words relate to one another, scales out, learns how the sentences relate to one another as well, and then can produce that as novel data. So, data in, data out. And uh, as far as I'm concerned and my research is concerned, it's multimodal which means it's not just text but it's image video audio uh, code 3d assets like you'd find in video games and virtual reality um all kinds of media
0: fascinating and and what are like some of the misconceptions about ai because we're not ai because when i sorry first of all could backtrack a little bit so the difference between ai and generative ai is how would you define that
1: uh, generative ai is just a subfield. Uh, And and it's connected to, uh, you know, a few of the other branches of the AI tree, but you've also got predictive algorithms, the kinds of things you might find in Netflix or Spotify recommender systems, the things that power social media. Um, You've got AI concerned with image recognition, facial recognition, eye tracking, uh, speech synthesis, all different branches of the same field of technology, which has existed since the 1950s. Yeah. of AI is just a little corner of that world.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. And What are some of the misconceptions about AI? Because when it seems to be quite the buzzword at the moment or the the concept everyone's trying to work out. And on one end of the spectrum, it's going to change everything that we can possibly perceive in terms of education. And on the other end, it's not as seismic as what some people may argue. But where do you kind of lie on that spectrum? And is it going to be, are the changes going to be as dramatic as some of the people are predicting in terms of the doomsday sayers or uh, do you think it's something that is um yeah not as terrifying as people may um imagine
1: it's it's really interesting this is one of the most interesting things I find to watch unfold is this whole existential threat narrative of AI is going to destroy the world and um I mean this technology isn't particularly new so the transformer technology that sits within GPT for example which makes it able to um infer from big portions of text and then produce cohesive text that's been kicking around since um, 2017 when Google researchers published that paper and chat GPT isn't generative AI so that's a huge misconception you know you see it used um, interchangeably the words chat GPT and AI it isn't intelligent it doesn't think it can't reflect um some people argue that it's it's got a, a sort of a language based model of the world in the more powerful models so they you know they say you're splitting hairs if you say does it understand or does it not understand because it looks like it understands so for all intents and purposes it does um i would argue that until it can until it can plan um until it can think ahead until it can reflect on what it's done um, and interact with other systems, then it's not really doing any of that. Now some of that's, you know, certainly on the horizon, you know, maybe not in the next six to twelve months, but those are the kinds of things that people are working towards. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really buy into that whole um, you know, things like ChatGPT are going to spell the end of the world or the end of school or the end of high school English or or any of those narratives that have been kicking around. Uh what ChatGPT did was raise public awareness of the technology
0: so um so what are some of these implications like for educators because um I, I follow a lot of um like I said a lot of a lot of educators that have a, a, a range of perspectives about AI and generative generative AI and uh, what are some of the implications um for educators and and I guess a follow-up question to that is what on earth are we supposed to do with all this as 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 teachers is it a tool that we can use for good uh or do you think yeah
1: yeah look i mean no technology is neutral you know technology yeah. is presented as neutral you don't think we're interacting over zoom at the moment and you don't think of zoom influencing or steering our conversation in any particular way but i mean it, it is you know just the way the platform is created influences how we use it yeah um, and, and in the same way generative ai using the technology will influence the way that we create things. So that's something that's going to play a huge role in education, but it that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or, or bad. It just speaks to the fact that using the technology will have an impact. I think the um, the rhetoric around AI is going to revolutionize education or AI is going to destroy education, both of them are a bit too deterministic for my tastes. AI is not going to do anything. AI will, will just reinforce whatever system we, we choose to, to persist with. The bigger problem is that I think it's exposed something that we've known for a while now, which is that the system we have isn't necessarily for the, for the benefit of the students that we have in front of us. Hmm. So if, you know, on a positive note, then it is certainly from what I've seen spurring along some of that conversation. That's certainly been happening for, you know, for a lot longer than just AI. Um, a lot of this was a, was accelerated during COVID. Mm. Um, you know, my former school joined the Melbourne University New Metrics program during COVID. Uh, similar programs running across Australia are trying to come up with new ways of doing assessment, doing senior school certificates, tertiary entrance pathways, that kind of thing. SACE is working on that over in South Australia oh. right now. Yeah. So, So a lot of these things have existed before AI. And AI has kind of come along now on the back of COVID and just given another push
0: because I feel like uh, Leon we're and, and I do think this like you said this was sort of accentuated during COVID um but the, the 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 role of the teacher the role of the classroom and the role of schools was really questioned and I feel like it, like you're saying what AI seems to have done is just shone, shone a spotlight on issues that we know that we already have and and I think it's a or sorry, issues that are already in the education system that we may not be aware of. And so I, I think of questions like, what is the role of the teacher? Um, uh, Google is way smarter than I am. So then it comes to the question, okay, what am I doing there that in, in the classroom that a machine can't do? And I feel like we're in a um, a period of such intense and dramatic change in schools that some of these questions that we have been maybe a little bit too scared of to ask for a really long time, now pushed to the service and there's nothing like a crisis or a new technology i think to uh to kind of bring that out to the forefront um but how do you think though we how do we even begin to um to help students kind of navigate these technologies when we don't even really have a grasp on them themselves What, what are some of the things you think that we could do as educators in classrooms to help people adopt these technologies because i've heard policies of, say, schools banning mobile phones and limiting technology use and engagement. And for me, that doesn't really get to the core of the issue, um, because this technology is there. But um, I don't even know there's a question in there that I'm asking you. But how can we help students to kind of navigate the process through this process?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting comparison with the banning of, of mobile phones, because obviously ChatGPT itself was banned um, across the state sector, certainly. Mm. And yeah. um, and not just in Australia, either. you know, there were schools internationally that were systems banning um, the technology. And, and those bans, some of them were there for good reasons. You know, you can't have a product which initially had a, a terms and conditions of 18 plus in front of kids in schools. Um, you're asking for trouble, but, you know, those have opened up now. So it's, I think something that everybody is getting their heads around at the moment is these technologies aren't just another tool. Um, So uh, we published a a paper recently called, it's it's not just a calculator. It's not like a calculator. And the reason we argued that is because we've seen so much of that narrative of AI as another calculator, or it's like another iPhone, or it's like another Wikipedia or X, Y, and Z tool. And it really is a system change and i think the only way that teachers can cope with something like a system change is to just be using and experiencing the technology themselves yeah uh, and, and and you know we've we've done that like we've done that with social media we've done that with um the internet uh you know we we've had systems come and go in in our recent history that teachers have adapted to and um i think it would be Incorrect to say now that there's that there's people out there teaching who don't know how to use the internet or who don't yeah. know, you yeah, know, you know what I mean. These are things that we just uh, eventually become accustomed to because they are so ubiquitous. Yeah, the, the risk of that obviously is that we don't take the uh, critical perspective of them, um, and we know from experience of the internet, of social media, of other systems that we have to have a critical mindset um, to help students deal with some of the ethical complexities of that kind of technology.
0: Yeah. So what do you think Leon, are some of the the qualities or the attributes that teachers need to embody when it comes to embracing this technology? Because I I know I I work, um, I'm a stage two assistant principal, and there are some kids in the classroom that I I had to learn how to use technology, and I think I'm pretty competent. But there are kids in my classroom that has always been a part of their life, and it does seem sometimes a little bit out of place for me to be up there, teaching them how to use this software that they are far more experienced than I am. So what sort of mindsets do you think teachers need to adopt in order to be able to help their students navigate and embrace this kind of technology? Because, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So I think I think there's two parts to it. I think one is that um, ethical, critical, creative, uh, I guess the the parts of the curriculum which are encompassed by the general capabilities in Australia, yeah, yeah. um, which which you know honestly schools just don't do a lot with, do they? They they're kind of tacked on at the end of subject sure. disciplines and content, unfortunately. But those those core skills are really important, and we and we do that, you know, we model that, and and we can talk about ethical issues, and we can talk about, um, looking at best practice ways of. of you know delivering lessons which encourage criticality and creativity yeah but the other thing that I think is is missing sometimes from these conversations about general capabilities is that there is still a place for teachers as subject experts yeah so I I don't know as much as you know you said before Google knows more than more than us about anything uh, a large language model can probably give you more information about Marxist critical literary theory than I can uh, but I' love teaching Marxist critical literary theory and I think there's still a place for teachers to be able to le- lean into that kind of passion for their disciplines as well yeah you know I know some really incredibly passionate primary teachers who just love working with younger kids and helping them in that kind of interdisciplinary sense and helping them learn um a- a- across the kind of broad sweep of literacy numeracy technology that you do in a primary context and I know some secondary teachers who are absolute subject discipline matter experts who love their subject matter who did their degrees in particular subjects and that's just what they want to teach and I think that we can we can do both you know we can have subject matter experts we can teach critical creative thinking and the general capabilities and we can do all of that with a layer of technology mm -hmm. um you know I know a lot of people talk about AI literacy um And, you know, we have to teach AI literacy now and we have to teach kids how to use AI technologies. I I don't think that Sam Altman, the the CEO of OpenAI or Mark Zuckerberg of Meta or any of these people had AI literacy classes when they were at school. Um, I'm pretty sure most of them went to elite, wealthy private schools in the U.S. where they learned English, maths, science, Uh, and they're doing all right for themselves out of these technologies Mm. Uh, they probably could have done a bit better if they'd had a little bit more ethical instruction arguably yeah but uh, i think you know i think that we don't have to get too swept up in this whole ai literacy narrative i think we can we can do what we're good at
0: Uh, i think it kind of links quite nicely to your um the conversation we're having before about the impact the sort of the personal Impact of teachers and about, I I don't feel like that has changed or will change. I think there will always be a need for a human and a personal touch in a classroom. Um, And and I think, um, I mean, I, uh, through the, like I said, I'm very much a a, a novice around AI and especially your work. And I appreciate you sort of guiding me through the minefield um, this evening. But I am, it seems like there will always be that need for a passionate, gifted, selfless empathetic kind educator in front of students would you agree with that or do you see that sort of that role diminishing somewhat
1: no I agree I mean I've tried in the past 12 months to to use you know chatbots and and various forms of generative AI to learn things and I know that there's an increasing tilt towards personalized tutoring and um things like Khan and those kinds of things I've been quite critical of those uh, partially because having used them a lot myself, they just don't feel, uh, they, well, feel, that's the word. There is no feel. Sure. <laughs> um, they, they're very transactional. There's an assumption there that the way that we learn things is just by, you know, the, the machine holds all of the information and we have to kind of coax it out um, over a period of interactions. And, and there's no acknowledgement of the relational or affective emotional aspect of teaching. So uh, I don't think we're going to be replaced by chatbots anytime soon. Yeah, um, look uh, that is a narrative that's associated with these technologies though yeah. it's come through recently in the UK Rishi Sunak the prime minister there has talked about um, you know the the promise of chatbots in schools and giving every child a one-to-one tutor we just had a series of parliamentary hearings for the parliamentary inquiry into generative AI and um, I was privy to one where somebody was talking about a personal tutor chatbot and every student will have their own um chatbot that notes them inside and out and I thought Ooh, if that happens I might be homeschooling my kids
0: yeah yeah it, it does raise some really interesting um sort of questions I think around security and the use of data and I know um for those that are not familiar with our sort of context in Australia there's been a number of kind of big companies that have been put under that pump for um for being quite unethical and so do you, what what do you think like do you think that we need to have more of a discussion about how all of this data is collected and mined, and 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 all of that kind of stuff, especially around protections with kids, is that an important conversation which we you think we need to have?
1: Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And and there's great work being done in Australia, I think, which is maybe I'm sure it's happening um, across the world, but it, it seems like Australia is a real kind of hotbed for this kind of work to be done. So the eSafety Commissioner in Australia is an absolute powerhouse at dealing with these um, companies including taking on the really big organizations like um, Twitter now X obviously, um, Omegle, which has been closed down um, a social media platform where people were just logging on and uh, you know sharing data in very unsafe ways. So the e-safety commissioner in Australia does a power of work. Um, the uh, the the idea of the the data collection as well I find fascinating because these, applications these these systems and including ai are just built on piles and piles and piles of data that we've given them um piles of social media data yeah um there's a a new book that's just come out very recently um by lucy pangrazio and julian sefton green on datification um and uh, I'm still waiting to get my hands on the hard copy, but Ju- Julian Seth Green's uh, my uh, assistant supervisor uh, and is uh, an absolute gun in this. And Lucy's great as well. So just fantastic research coming out of Australia and the UK around these areas.
0: Amazing. And it does remind me uh, of, of the quote and forgive me if I'm I, I misquoting it, but the idea that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And yeah. how do we kind of, how do we avoid kind of becoming products of these sort of uh, large influential companies Um, and this is probably a conversation that would fill a whole nother series of podcasts but do you have any thoughts on that about how do we make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing in terms of education
1: yeah I think um, I think that education for students around what data is uh, and how they can own their own data how they can take charge of it um, you know, the European Union does a great job with the the GDPR and their data protection acts. We don't have that in Australia. Um, and I think we need to put a lot of time and energy into uh, helping young people understand where their data goes, you know, and, and everything is data these days. If you've got a smartwatch, if you've got a phone, your heart rate is data, your location is data, the photos on your phone, the, the words that you say near to your phone, even when it's yeah. not actually doing anything. It's yeah. all data and and it's all being funneled into somebody's AI algorithm somewhere. Uh, yeah. So, you know, why and who owns that data and how do we get it back?
0: Yeah. And, and it seems like you're talking about the general sort of capabilities before about the critical creative thinking reasoning. It seems like now more than ever, um, these skills should be central to what we're teaching in schools that ability to be able to synthesize information, to check the validity of sources, to be able to argue, to be able to empathize with different points of view. And they seem very human characteristics. And um, so it seems like these are incredibly important as we move forward, um, just to be able to empathize with other students or other individuals. I mean, you look at the world now, there's a lot happening. Sometimes I think if people just sat down and had a conversation um, and talked, that would be beneficial. Mm -hmm um Leon I was just wondering um about an article that you wrote um uh, on your blog and I'll put a link into it uh, put a link to it in our show notes and you argue about the importance of balancing the critical and creative aspects of generative AI um firstly what do you mean by this um and also why do you think this is so important
1: yeah that, that came out of a conversation with another um writing educator over in the US Anna Mills um and so she really early on in this whole you know chat gpt wave of hype was crashing over the top of us she started to curate articles um for and against uh, generative ai and writing instruction and and we we'd had a conversation on the side about grappling with this idea that the technology is is really problematic you know we've we've spoken about some of the ethical issues the the issues of bias and transparency and where your data goes and all of those kind of ethical problems but it's also really fun to use um it you know it could be really uh interesting and engaging and exciting to use image generation for the first time or to create videos from text to video um to even just to use chat GPT to create you know silly short bits of text which is what most people use it for can it, you know it's it's a fun tool it's a it's an engaging tool and students will find it fun and engaging as well so how do we balance that you know how do we get our heads around those yeah. critical ethical aspects and the creative aspects
0: yeah it, it it's such an important question I think it's 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 really important and it, and for those that haven't read the article it's a really um I believe it's a and a, a Q&A between you two. And it's a really lovely, um, uh, a really powerful article. And you also talk a lot about um, why we should rethink assessment using AI. Um, what are some of the implications that um, AI could have um, on the way that we assess our students and also the way that we collect and synthesize and analyze that data?
1: Uh, well, look there's a few ways that this could go you know there's uh the, the optimistic way is is that we are forced to confront the fact that most of our assessment isn't really fit for purpose we were just assessing stuff for the sake of it we're assessing things which maybe don't need to be assessed and in ways which aren't really suited to the assessment so as as an English teacher, I always go back to writing assessment yeah um I love writing. Uh, You know, I'll I'll write for days. I'll write anything, blog posts, speculative fiction, books, whatever you like. Um, That's me. Not everybody likes writing. Not everybody feels confident as a writer. And yet we assess everybody through writing. You know, probably the majority of our assessments in secondary education, certainly, and in primary, and definitely in tertiary, are in a a written assessment mode. Um, So we would ask why, you know, when I say rethinking assessment for generative AI, we've got this tool now, which the entire purpose of a large language model is just to create text in bulk that mm-hmm. looks like formulaic writing. <laughs> and so we don't need to get students to do that anymore. We've got to think of new ways to approach assessment. Sometimes that might mean getting rid of some of the assessments, you know, just kind of cutting out some of that deadwood. Uh, and it is going to require system level changes from our curriculum authorities, our V-cars, Q-cars, SACE, and so on and and a more communication between tertiary and secondary providers so yeah. that uh, schools don't think that the whole point of assessment is getting kids into university
0: yeah and, and excuse my uh, ignorance with this question um Leon but it a, a text that um AI constructs original texts so they counted as um texts that are authentic uh or how how do we even begin to sort of approach that idea of authenticity Uh, because i know that i remember going through uni and sitting through lectures about plagiarism and making sure that what you produce is your work um does that also raise some ethical questions around the originality of text
1: yeah it's been the biggest concern in education of these technologies since chat gpt emerged Uh, and i think that the idea of students using it to cheat is you know, it's an understandable fear, but it's probably not it's pretty far from the most important ethical concern of the technology when you consider everything else. So uh, I, I would say that ac- academic honesty hasn't changed because of AI. You know if you look at schools or universities integrity policies, they often say things like be honest, submit your own work if you've uh, if you've used another source, acknowledge it. If you've worked with another person, acknowledge that. And we can extend all of that into generative AI. So we can say, okay, yes, I I wrote this piece of writing and I used ChatGPT to do this, this, and this. Or I wrote this entirely by myself or ChatGPT wrote the whole thing and I just came up with the ideas. And all of those are perfectly acceptable. We, the educators, define what cheating is. Hmm. So if we change the definition of cheating um, to be more encompassing of these technologies, acknowledging that we can't police it and that detection tools do not work. I'm <laughs> just going to throw that out there for anybody in the audience who's um, relying yeah. on any of those tools. They're not reliable enough to hang an academic integrity judgment on and we shouldn't have to. Yeah. We shouldn't be having to have those conversations with students. We should tell them what acceptable and unacceptable is. Uh, we should you know, meet them halfway on those and negotiate some of those understandings. Yeah. and then we should move forward in that kind of trusting yeah. and honest environment
0: i think that's so important and, and and i know like i mean i've been using things like um uh s- spelling and grammar checkers grammarly grammarly pro for years and it does seem like that is almost an early iteration of using technology to improve your work like you could also argue that is that my original work if i've been told to put an exclamation mark or to change a. Uh, mm-hmm. A word there, and I think I feel like that is almost um, that's obviously further down the line in terms of using technology to enhance your work. But but I also think it's the same kind of question, isn't it? that um, yeah. how we uh, how we're using these incredible platforms to to improve our work and to um, to produce better content. I think it's a a really interesting conversation, and it almost seems like our policies and our procedures as in all cases with. Uh, new and emerging technologies haven't really kept up with the the speed and the pace um of the technology itself so it feels like we've got a lot of work to do around policies and procedures and regulations mm-hmm. and all those sort of things
1: and, um, and look it's it's only chat GPT that's that's really stirred all of this up so some of these technologies as I say they've been well embedded into things that we use in education for years yeah we're, we're working on a journal article at the moment around AI and assessment. Uh, and one of the points that we've made in the article is that uh, Adobe's um, some of their generative AI products have been in their, in their program since 2016. So wow. the Adobe, the Adobe yeah. Sensei products, they, you know, they don't call it generative AI, but they're AI products and they're Sensei um, yeah. things, which are as part of Photoshop. And and there are uh, artificial intelligence tools which have been embedded in those technologies for, <laughs> for nearly a decade. Uh, and nobody says, hold on a minute, you've used this feature of Photoshop in producing your digital artwork and you've cheated. Uh so so you've yeah. you've broken the rules and you're you're not allowed to submit this piece of digital artwork. I don't think there would be a tertiary provider in the country that would stop a student from using Photoshop. Yeah. And yet we have this new tool. Wow. and it does it does a new thing that we're not familiar with and it's scary. And all of a sudden we go, okay, no, let's let's call that cheating. Yeah. That's that's where we've drawn the line in the sand. But again, we've drawn that line
0: and we can move it. Yeah, it's really interesting, Leon. And and like I said, I feel like that, I mean, there is no way that we could possibly uh, talk about this incredible field in in the short space we have this evening. But I'm so incredibly grateful. And like I said, that you would help me sort of walk through this uh, challenging terrain this evening and and just have a conversation. And my hope is that there would be educators out there that are listening to this, um, that it sparks a curiosity, um, or it sparks a um, uh, a desire to learn more. And and like I said, that's why I'll, I'll put links to everything that we've talked about in our show notes. Um, I just have one uh, or, or two uh, just quick questions just to wrap up our discussion. Um, what do you think needs to change um, looking forward in terms of um, how we train teachers to navigate this uh, uncertain educational landscape?
1: I think we've got to just reconceptualize slightly what education is for you know what are we what are we doing this for because at the moment senior secondary certificates in australia definitely are the tail wagging the dog and and that's not necessarily coming from the assessment boards it's not coming from tertiary it's not coming from parents it's not coming from just one place it's it's an entire kind of systemic narrative and so as, as new teachers are coming through initial teacher education they're part of changing that narrative you know we need to be really conscious of language that we use when we're talking with teachers how we talk about education we're seeing some of that now with with jason Clare's latest tech campaign about be that teacher yeah yeah Um, Yeah. and you know in in a way i could see that there's a a lot of um a lot of good thoughts gone into that campaign because it is about uh capturing the essence of why people go into teaching and people don't go into teaching because of NAPLAN or the VCE, the HSE, or any of those structures, which really determine what we do in schools. So let's rethink some of those things. Let's help initial teacher educators rethink some of that. And let's see if the next generation of teachers can um, start pushing those boundaries back a bit.
0: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more, Leon. And I think it's a, um, I actually get really excited with this stuff. I love when a, um, when a new idea or a technology or a new a new innovation comes in and causes us to really question some of those things that we thought were unquestionable. I mean, never in a million years did I think that teaching would go online um, until COVID hit and then it just became what we did. Um, and so I love that stuff. And I think while many people find it really destabilizing for me, that's why I feel like I'm in education to help try and solve some of those really Fundamental problems. Um, Leon, your work is um really really interesting. Um, I got lost uh on your uh, on your blog for many hours uh, a number of months ago, and thank you so much for um for helping to dispel some of the myths of AI. And and thank you so much for helping, like I said, amateurs like myself and amateurs that are listening to this to kind of navigate through that terrain. Because I think unless you've got a, a trusted voice or a familiar voice, it can become A little bit scary so i really appreciate you taking the time and also all the um all the work that you're putting out into the world it's been a a huge privilege to get to speak to you this evening thank you so much
1: Uh, thank you very much thank you for the invite
0: thank you